0: Hi Habibis, I just wanted to let you all know that Habibti Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is very important to me and others as a group of progressive voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives told in right-wing and liberal media. I want to recommend some shows I personally enjoy that are part of the Harbinger Media Network, such as Robert Rousseau's 49th Parahal, as well as the Indigenous storytelling series Feel Rouge, which features stories from Indigenous communities in the far north of Quebec. Harbinger is listener supported. You can get subscriber specific content when you head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and subscribe.
1: Hi everyone. Here we are sitting down to talk with Omar Burgan. He's a member of Courage Coalition Ottawa and the organization is putting together 14 resolutions to submit to the federal NDP convention coming up soon. We're here to focus on seven of those, namely justice and peace in Israel-Palestine, land back, free transit for all, abolish billionaires, defund the RCMP, electoral district autonomy, and creation of publicly owned telecoms and so we'll focus on on some of these in in detail but we'll touch on all of them as we talk but we're very excited to learn more about it and and learn more about efforts to change the ndp and and make it more progressive and bring it back to its socialist roots as well yeah thank you for having me today
0: thanks for joining us and i guess a big question that we want answered before we dive in is what is courage coalition and how did it come about
2: Right. So Courage Coalition is is simply just a coalition of progressive um, uh, people who got together um, in an an effort to create a movement that exists uh, basically uh, in between elections, a movement of grassroots organizers and uh, progressive people. And, you know, basically to have a a home base where we can organize and, and push forward new progressive ideas.
0: There's different chapters throughout the country from what we understand. And so how did how did courage come about coming together to make these resolutions across Canada and and have this joint effort
2: basically it was just a um uh, a decision to turn our the their attention to uh, because courage doesn't operate solely um in in conjunction with with the NDP i mean there's definitely because the NDP is the party of labor progressives uh they um there will be often an effort to, to be more involved uh, in that party. But it's, um, you know, courage is a democratic structure. So there was um, a, a vote basically to turn their attention towards uh, the NDP uh, convention that's coming up uh, and it's a policy convention. Uh, and then members simply all uh, held meetings and made recommendations as to what uh, what they should be pushing for and fighting for. Uh, there were a lot of, you know, brainstorming, a lot of ideas came up. And then they they basically, for every category that the uh, the NDP has, you um, uh, base, all their policies are divided into categories the the coalition voted uh, to basically vote on which policy within each category which one policy they would shortlist to create that seven shortlist and uh, the other ones are also being uh, listed on the website and and uh, the membership all decided that they are in support of those as well
1: so what do you think the support is for these resolutions outside of courage and maybe amongst the general NDP base right now that's a
2: really good question. I think it really depends on the issue. I, and I think one of the purposes for this is that there is often a frustration amongst people uh, working grassroots movements and really who, who spend a lot of time working on these issues that the discourse and kind of the mainstream is, is very limited um, and, and limiting as well and doesn't allow for, for these ideas to even circulate uh, amongst in the mainstream. So I think on some, depending on which issue, because it, it is a broad kind of spectrum, Some of them, you know, are or have already been kind of opened up and and discussed a lot uh, in 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 various circles and and mainstream circles and others are. Things that, you know, people in Courage do feel, and, and they're not alone often. It's things that the grassroots movements in, in these different is- issues are uh, feel very strongly about or, or um, uh, really want to gain more coverage. And those issues can gain more light simply by putting them forward at, uh, at this convention and, and talking about them and talking about them openly with people and debating them.
0: Courage and its like very origins uh, was kind of, kind of played a part in getting rid of uh, mole care is one big thing um, with the embrace of the LEAP manifesto. And it kind of reminds us of the potential of work done outside of electoral politics to push electoral politics. And so uh, we wanted to focus on the first big resolution that you've had a role in shaping as the justice and peace in Israel, Palestine resolution, because there is clearly a grassroots hunger for, for this. And there has been for a few conventions now, and there's stories that you hear about, whenever this topic comes up at a convention, how it goes. So we'd love to hear from you about how the resolution came about, what the process looked like, what's the resolution asking for, and then we can dive into kind of why it's necessary to start having these serious conversations in the NDP that don't just get kind of sidelined.
2: Absolutely. So this is something that came together kind of spontaneously in, uh, before the 2018 convention, and it was uh, a group of us, uh, I was involved in 2018 as well, who uh, some of whom were Courage members, got together, uh, I guess courage was kind of in its at its very beginnings. And we uh, we were a group of of, Palis- of people of Palestinian and uh, uh, background and, and Jewish uh, progressives as well. And we felt very frustrated with the with the status quo um, in terms of the Israel-Palestine as it stands over there and in the diaspora, as well as the status quo within uh, mainstream political parties. So in 2018, there was a, a, a very organized and uh, strong push to have the NDP's policy totally revamped. The policies it stands now within the NDP, I mean, it's it's dated in the sense that it was established during the Oslo peace process when this whole idea of, you know, the solution to everything is just negotiations. uh, And the solution is to establish two separate state entities. And, you know, a lot of people felt that that was The way to go. And I think now in hindsight, people realize that 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 was not a process that was in any way going to lead to something. And by its very nature, um, it was uh, detrimental to the rights and, and freedoms of Palestinians and only led to subsequent, even more intense uh, colonial practices and, and violent practices towards Palestinians. So in 2018, there was an effort to revamp it. And, and uh, for anyone who was there in person in the prioritization room, because the way things work at an NDP convention is that, that you know, uh, writing submit uh, resolutions and there's a prioritization process because they get so many, they decide w- what order is the priority. And only the ones at the very top end up having enough time to be debated so at this stage and and even in 2018 the the, the fight is solely to have the right to debate this at convention. And in 2018, it came incredibly close. And there was a lot of frustration for those who were present because it came within a hair of of simply being prioritized to discuss. And there were definitely concerted efforts from um, party staff and elected uh, party members to do everything in their power to pack the room and and ensure that uh, we were only a few votes short of having that debated. So There was a lot of discontent following that because, you know, the 2018 resolution was was a reworking to to have it more in line with anti-colonial concepts. But also it it called for ending trade with uh, illegal settlements, which is a very widely shared recommendation amongst NGOs and peace groups. And so now in, in 2021 for the convention, there's no simply the resolution only calls for two things, and that's ending trade with legal settlements and ending uh, weapons trade. Uh, so Canada does trade extensively um, with Israel in terms of selling and buying weaponry. The weapons we sell to Israel can and uh, most likely have been used on civilians. And the weapons we buy have in in been shown to have been developed by Simply testing them in uh, in conflicts in the Gaza Strip, for example. So those are the two calls of the the 2021 20, uh, resolution.
1: So within the resolution, there's mention to uh, independent states with agreed upon borders, and obviously there's a lot of nuances to a two state versus one state solution and i don't think this resolution purports to prescribe one but it does sort of reference one and so i'm worried i'm wondering if you can speak to that especially considering how settlements have encroached onto the west bank to the point that the analogy has been drawn to the sort of bantustans of, of south africa and how can we what is the, I guess, feasibility of, of having sort of agreed upon borders or even working towards that when the reality is that, you know, the West Bank has been fractured um, so greatly?
2: Absolutely. That's a very good question. Uh, f- you know, fundamentally, that wording is the original wording of the NDP. And uh, there was discussions uh, amongst uh, when it was f- we were first working on it, whether we should simply amend it to say state or states, because I think uh, I think the point you raise is valid. My personal opinion is that a two state solution is not possible, uh, nor would it ever be fair. That's my personal take. Now, I think in the context of the NDP convention, we uh, I think it was simply a strategic uh, idea to say, Listen, if you do believe in two states, then you would have no no problem supporting these policies, whether it's one state or two states. I think that uh, these policies are are only um, only. Kind of lo- logical and moral to support. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it is tough to have fulsome discussions about. It. And I think the idea of one state, although, you know, like I said, most people are quite familiar with what that concept entails. And um, there's books about it, there's articles that come out about it, and there's growing movements. Uh, and I think that is something that. Is definitely happening, but in terms of it being widely accepted and understood, even within the Palestinian diaspora, I would say, and uh, even I would say, even with within Palestinian society in uh, in Israel Palestine, I think the idea of one state is nascent and is going on, but it's not fully reached a point where people will kind of get what that entails and what things, what the outcome of that would be.
0: A question I have for you is: is presently for people who are not as familiar with the NDP or who are not as familiar with the policy book. Presently, what is the policy, if any, on Palestine and the NDP policy book?
2: The current policy is, is as you, is- kind of the way you've seen it written, uh, minus the two recommendations to end uh, trade with settlements and end the arms trade. So basically, it's simply calling for negotiations and respect for international law and in respect for UN uh, resolutions, which is kind of ironic, because, uh, you know, one UN General Assembly resolution is to grant the right uh, for Palestinian refugees to return to their homes. So according to the the NDP um, official policy, the NDP should be advocating for the right of return. I, I don't think that's something that happens very, commonly. But um, that being said, I think that uh, simply adding these two things and making us realize the basic kind of complicity that our state has and has been having for as long as, you know, ever since the Nakba, by condemning certain things uh, on one hand, and then fully endorsing and supporting them in practice. And so the, the addition of these two elements just is to make uh, it's in some ways revolutionary in the sense that this is something that only few countries have started to do but in other ways it's really the bare minimum that any state could do and and purport to respect international law and human rights because Canada will condemn settlements and Canada will and even MPs will go on tours and say yeah the settlements were quite horrible and, and quite a violent and uh, the immoral practice but then you say well so will you stop encouraging them through through trade deals and they say well that's that's a step too far and so so this is the frustration I think the grassroots often feels is that words of support and empathy uh, we, we've we seen a lot. And I, we think that now it's, it's probably the time. It's, it's not just the time. It's far outdated that we should actually have policies that do the things we purport to say that we, we support as, uh, you know, within this country.
0: And I appreciate you saying that. And I one thing I wanted to ask you about was... What this resolution um, has been endorsed by Independent Jewish Voices, Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, Palestine House, Labor for Palestine, Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. But what's the endorsement like? What are the endorsements like from, I guess, big party players? Like what are who are the members of parliament who've endorsed it Um, or other people who I guess are movers and shakers in the NDP?
2: So one of the endorsements I think that was the most important for us also is that the the coalition of Palestinian Canadians, uh, after you know they discussed and debated it, and they said they they support it. And for me, that's that was quite fundamental because I do think that you know not only was the resolution drafted uh, by consulting with with um, folks who are Palestinian, but also you know it, it's something that the. The diaspora in canada has supported wholeheartedly in terms of um movers and shakers we you know we have uh and there are quotes on the website and maybe i can i can plug the website now it's Resolution 2021ca uh, and you will find that in the endorsement part um you know we've had uh we've had three mps from the ndp come out and and support it openly and even provided quotes that that demonstrate the support and that's matthew green who's been you know, very vocal in the past uh, with regards to support for Palestinian rights, uh, Alexandre Bouleriz and uh, Nikki Ashton, and also from the provincial NDP, Joel Hardin, um, who's my MP here in Ottawa Centre, also a fantastic uh, ally in, in various causes. And and that's that was a bit heartening, because like I said, I think often, you know, a, a lot of MPs will will speak out and say, what's happening is wrong. And I support human rights and I support Palestinians. And we we kind of feel like, well, then do something about it. You know, don't, why, why is challenging the status quo suddenly off limits? Why is um, ending the trade with settlements uh, off limits? Why haven't you done that yet, basically? And why aren't you vocal about this? It's, it should not be a controversial thing. And yet still, we find that there is a bit of, there is resistance to that. And we we definitely want to challenge that because we don't think there's any justification to supporting trade with settlement, nor is there justification for providing weapons to the state of Israel, uh, considering the, it's, track record with the civilians.
1: Switching gears, we're curious to learn more about the defund the RCMP resolution and to the extent you can talk about that sort of asking for and how that might be received. So I think that you
2: know, there has been a, a growing movement for defunding the police um, in, in many spheres. And uh, the idea behind it is simply that the, you know, in the case of defunding the police is that we, we allocate tremendous amounts of, of resources to policing and often at the detriment of social programs uh, that would make our society safer um, without having to, without the use of, of violence. In the case of the RCMP, you know, there is a feeling amongst many, and, and there's quite a bit of, uh, even in recent years, uh, demonstrations. Of, of the uh, colonial nature and co- colonial origins of the RCMP and how it was, it has been used to to police Indigenous peoples on uh, a, you know uh, all over um, uh, Turtle Island, North America. And the idea here is to simply um, gradually de- defund it. You know, if I um, If I was to put in my 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 kind of my labor union side, I would say, in addition, there should always be a just transition for people who uh, only have that as a source of income. And, you know, anytime you talk about defunding a certain sector for you need to support the workers who have have no choice often but to um, to work there. But the idea is to gradually defund it and then to reinvest that funding into um, uh, mental health services, public safety measures and basically supports for municipalities so that uh, we, we do not need so there will be much less of a need for it anyways and much healthier and 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 more just societies
0: i'm also thinking about a lot of the calls for defunding the rcmp are also rooted in again decolonial movements and so there's another resolution and these are all connected which i really love how courage has prioritized seven very connected resolutions and i think about justice and peace in israel palestine defunding the police and i think about land back because of the role that the rcmp has played in colonization and um the violence that indigenous people here have faced and i was wondering if you could talk to us a bit about what the land back resolution is hoping to accomplish but also kind of like with the justice uh, justice and peace in israel palestine it was very easy for certain members of the NDP to do land acknowledgements to say that they were in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en. However, we have Horrigan as part of the party, which has uh, made a lot of young people not want to be part of this party. And we have all these contradictions. So what does the land back resolution look like? and, And how is it similar to the Palestine resolution, where we want to see more than just like nice words, we want to see a bit of action here?
2: I think there's definitely a link there, and although I, I definitely stand, I stand in solidarity with indigenous people, you know, on Turtle Island, uh, and. There, there's often there's a link that's very clear to me and it's it's basically when it comes time to challenge the interests of, of you know the financial interests or economic interests of some over the rights of indigenous peoples uh, or the land rights of any people often you know that's when our politicians fail us because there's a price on it and uh, the idea of, of simply um, you know uh, returning crown lands to restore indigenous jurisdiction to indigenous people the only roadblock to that is basically that it would not allow for the uh, the industrial or the economic exploitation of said lands or at least that indigenous people would have a say in it and that uh that would not allow for unfettered and, and complete, um, you know, uh, development of these lands with with uh, no consideration of land title rights or or um, the, the, uh, the environmental impacts of these projects. So definitely, this is something that needs to be, you know, the land back movement is, in my mind, is something that's emerging more and more. We're starting to see more stories about what does that mean? What exactly is the idea of land back? And why should people support this? And how, um, you know, it really is kind of an idea that, if you, you know, we, we talk about Indigenous peoples and colonialism and, and the uh, the history of, of colonialism and genocide here in Canada, and what are we going to do about it? And what is, how do we undo those things and not simply say they're wrong, but keep doing them or, or pers- keep pursuing those things that we say are just bad things and, and are, are, are wrong?
1: That makes perfect sense. I think there's, there are obviously issues with Canadian understanding of Indigenous land title, um, but... You know, I think those are things that can be worked out once we are able to sort of restore jurisdiction um, and improving what that means. Maybe things like implementation of UNDRIP would improve them. It's it's great and it's also great to prescribe what exactly landbag bag means because I think people get all up in arms like, oh, Toronto is going to be sent back to, to like, okay, maybe it should, but that's not exactly what this is asking for. And so, yeah, that's really great to see. I'm thinking also about, there's also, there's just like a lot of, of exciting ones. Like, let's talk about free transit for all um, and what that would look like.
2: Right. Well, free transit for all, um, you know, Courage has, has also produced, um, if you go on social media, Courage has produced kind of two minute capsule videos and, and reached out to some fantastic uh, authors and and, uh, and leaders on on different issues and transit for all also is one that um, you know a lot everyone takes transit and um, I don't think we've no one's experienced the world in which you wouldn't pay a fare for a transit so I think that um, you know does come might come to surprise some but in in a world where we're facing you know a total climate disaster and we're looking for ways to avoid um, you know total climate disaster I think free transit is is a way that can allow for that and there are c- cities in the world that have implemented it with a tremendous success I'm learning about this, honestly, for the first time quite recently. And uh, this idea that, you know, especially we're seeing this now, you know, if I just take the example of Ottawa, where during the pandemic, ridership has decreased because the funding of, of transit is, so, is, is dependent on, on uh, ticket sales and fare, uh, paying fares. And so as soon as uh, ridership decreases, the city is now uh, taking steps to either privatize or, or cut uh, transit services. And that'll affect the most vulnerable people who, uh, who depend on these things. To, to get to work or to see family, so free transit is is a, a concept that is uh, emerging and and we're seeing is um, especially when faced with uh, very ineffective and and non-solutions to crime climate disaster, free transit is a very tangible one because they've it's been shown over and over that when transit is cheap or free, then it increases increases ridership tremendously. So you'll see less individual individual uses of cars uh, almost by de facto once uh, you you bring down fares and eventually eliminate them. So that's very exciting. To to, uh, to have that out there to, to, to be debated and discussed
1: yeah and, and the I was gonna say the the point about privatization I think like that rings very strongly um the ability to even make transit free if things become privatized becomes so difficult but even transit projects are like you know p3s public private partnerships are are becoming a huge factor in those and so you know steering away from that uh, ensuring that at least like the management and operation um, of these transit projects is public allows them to be free um I was reading Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything and she talked about an example of how Paris made the the smog in the city got so bad that Paris council made transit free for I think a week and like it completely cleared up <laughs> uh, because they made it free and everybody just started riding <laughs> because it it's better it's more convenient um and so when when things are free I think you're right we'll automatically see the the value and the like the the benefit almost immediately
2: yeah, and public transit is really to the benefit of all, not just the users. We we all benefit from having people using public transit because that's cleaner air and uh, basically doing our part to avoid the climate uh, catastrophe.
0: Yes, and the, the one thing I wanted to plug was because you mentioned the capsules. Um, James Wilt, who's been on this show, is one of the people who's been plugging free transit great book uh that he has and all the work he's been doing so we'll dump it in the show notes some of james wilt's work and if james wilt is backing this resolution it's it's a good resolution um big fan of his but uh free transit for all is just a really compelling one and i wonder um has the ndp like ever previously to your knowledge fought for things like free transit or reduced transit like reduced transit fees
2: I can't, I don't, I don't know if I'm familiar with that. Perhaps a provincial party has in the past advocated for that, but we haven't heard, uh, you know, at least in, in mainstream discourse from my general awareness of, of recent uh, election cycles, I I haven't heard uh, any any push for that personally.
0: Yes, and that tracks with what I've been seeing, because like I've been, I talked to James a lot and like we just, it just seems to be something where like people maybe desire it in si- certain cities, but it's just not something that gets put on the agenda. So I hope it's a resolution that, gets prioritized and then the other the other big question i have is about the abolish billionaires which is like a super exciting tagline anybody who like follows american politics knows that like aoc has like the merch that's like tax the rich and like billionaires shouldn't exist but in canada whenever people start to talk about billionaires we don't we don't get that same buzz even though it's so buzzy but it's it's a fun one and it's a necessary one and can you tell us more about the abolish billionaires resolution
2: yeah and definitely you're right i think a lot of um this um the kind of movement was has been pushed a lot in, in uh, you know by AOC and other progressive um politicians in the US and uh, the, uh another tagline I like is every billionaire is a policy failure um Oh yeah
0: that's, that's a good a, one
2: it is a good yeah. one uh because I I think it really makes you stop and think and I, I think again this idea I think needs to be discussed mainstream more, because first of all, there's tremendous amount of support, even when, when Canadians in the general population are polled for wealth taxes. And, uh, you know, I, I can still remember conversations I had years ago with folks who would say that they 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 were puzzled as to why people who amass huge amounts of wealth don't have it taxed at all and uh, this idea of billionaires you know the word billionaire takes so long so little time to just pronounce that word and we just kind of brush it off as well it just means someone with a lot of money but the amount one has to remember that to be, to be a billionaire you, you need to earn a salary of a million dollars for a thousand years uh, oh sorry for a hundred years beg your pardon Bennett wait did no, I get no, that it's right? it's a thousand it's it a is a thousand, thousand years Yeah, right yeah. Even, <laughs> as I say, even as I say it out loud I was like no no that can't yeah. be right so it's an amount It's an amount. you know already making a million dollars a year would be considered a, a, a huge salary and you would have to work for a thousand years to earn that amount so we're talking about wealth that no human being could be productive enough to earn that amount in a lifetime you know you'd have to live several lifetimes too and yet people are not just amassing wealth of one billion they're amassing wells of multiple billions so we're talking about thousands of years of wages at a million dollars. This amount of wealth accumulation is, you know, amount of, of kind of resource hoarding in a time where, where there's tremendous amount of scarcity uh, amongst people at uh, the working class. And also when we are facing tremendous societal and collective challenges. So you know, I I don't think there's any way around uh, confronting this. You know, I, I I think that this needs to be faced. Now, I do think, of course, when people read it and they say that you know anything beyond a billion dollars should be taxed at at a hundred percent, definitely it will stir uh, strong reactions from people, saying that's that's going too far and. I think that legitimately I'd, I don't think it is going too far because you know fundamentally it's it's the choices between just the status quo and actually doing something about it and actually having policies whereby we say that you know it doesn't make sense for anyone to hoard that amount of wealth um, and not only does it not make sense but it's detrimental to all of us with the tremendous challenges we're facing and, and I think we are reaching a breaking point at this time where we- wealth disparity is becoming incredibly pronounced and um, we there has to be concerted effort to do something about it and not just in micro kind of micro doses there has to be a genuine and strong effort against this and i i do hope that people are exposed to this idea more just because it it I, I think that it's growing in in, uh, in kind of support. I think I even saw a statistic that said it was something like 61% of conservative voters supported the wealth tax. So it's it's not something that's becoming, that's not uh, no longer a fringe opinion. But I do think that once it enters the, the electoral sphere and the sphere of politicians, sometimes it can get very watered down. Will they say, well, how about we tax half a percent, anything over this tremendous amount of money? And really, we need something much more, um, much more pronounced than that, much Better to to tackle this this tremendous problem
1: so EDA autonomy I think, I think that one is one where those of us who are not too familiar with the internal politics of the NDP um, are not we don't may, may necessarily understand like wha- why this is a problem and Nashua and I, despite um, talking about the NDP and interviewing lots of members, we are not members um, so. Yeah. so. <laughs> But but I think we have lent the NDP quite a lot of support regardless. Um, but we'd be curious to know and I think our listeners would also be curious to know what yeah, what that means, like what the current problem is.
2: I uh, so I should preface by saying I I'm not the expert on this issue within courage either, but I'm happy to to, to kind of give my my take on it. And I think it's simply allowing for, for stronger democracy within the party. I think all political parties in Canada have a kind of a demonstrated or what is 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 meant to give um, the idea that it's as democratic as possible. So all parties will, will hold kind of mini elections to to have nominees in various ridings. Now, what is often perceived as or from the outside, looks democratic people who have gone through it gone through the process over and over have found that despite lots of local support in a riding um, often the party central will intervene in certain ways and and put certain roadblocks in front of candidates that doesn't fit in with their vision of what what they want to uh, the impression that they want to give so I think with this resolution is is to amend the Constitution to provide the EDA with much clearer rules as to uh, you know one of the tools that parties employ is often they they have a vetting process. So, you know, someone snippets their name, and they say, I want to run. They do some background checks on the person. Now it can be, um, you know, and, and again, all parties do this. It's not something that's very um, NDP specific, but, you know, as the new Democratic Party, I think members are, have a, the right to expect a very high level of, of democratic principles and fairness with, within the party structure. So going back to vetting, so parties will, will vet people, they'll, they'll look at their backgrounds and, you know, if something comes up, like, you know, for instance, let's say a member is, uh, the person has a, a history an abusive of being abusive or you know of uh, putting out statements that are misogynistic or or racist i think that would be a very solid reason to tell someone well based on your your prior history we we cannot allow you to run however the problem is that sometimes if the party really fav- has someone in mind that is a good buddy of theirs and again not necessarily something that would be specifically in the NDP, but something that is specific happens in politics they can use this process to derail anyone else that could stand up as a challenger especially if they view them as too radical too lefty uh, whatever it is so they can say well we haven't finished vetting you yet and they could and the person will say well this other person you vetted in about two days and you're still vetting me for six weeks so I can't run until you vetted me this is basically a mechanism by which you can de- deny me running even though I you know I have very good reasons to be running and I have a lot of local support so it's it's putting more power in the hands of local Edas so it's the uh, uh, electoral district associations and putting it more in hands of local so if someone uh, in, a, in a local space is the right person is a fantastic candidate, has amazing values that there's less ability for the central body to interfere in them running and, and being elected locally, especially if they're they're doing it to, to favor someone that they think is is you know a, a party favorite or a former a former MP or a former minister or whatever it is. So it's it's a, a democratization uh, effort.
0: I appreciate you saying that because um, one of the reasons I don't formally join the NDP is because there's so many stories from other activists and organizers that I know about trying to take over, not take over, but like win in the proper way an EDA with a candidate that's very exciting for that EDA and then having that completely side railed. And so we, we saw that with, for example, Rana Zamad's nomination in uh, 2019 so rana zaman was a candidate who had some impassioned social media posts about being palestinian and about palestine and she had won the nomination and then she was taken off the nomination so rana zaman was one example of this and it's happened before a few times and one question ryan and i like to ask members of parliament that we interview sometimes is where We have millennials coming up in leadership, and millennials are obviously, we have different ways of touching the internet and talking about our opinions that are different than what they used to be able to do when they would just have these conversations more privately. So circling back to the first resolution on Palestine-Israel uh, and the EDA autonomy, but I want to ask you about, do you think that there's fears, uh, since you've been involved with that resolution a few times, that there's fears about corbonization of the party and certain members? And so um, do you think that people hesitate around that resolution every convention or stack the room, like you said, so the resolution doesn't become a priority because there is this kind of um, like some of us on the left call it a carbonization
2: you know, if we're talking specifically about Israel-Palestine, I think there have been a lot of cases with candidates, uh, specifically with the NDP. But I think there were some cases uh, even with the Liberal Party, whereby there was uh, very uh, intense attacks on people for for being uh, for being supportive of of Palestinian human rights and Palestinian decolonial efforts. And oftentimes, you know, it'll it'll be very kind of harsh and intense uh, you know especially if the person used language that was kind of oh uh, o- what they deemed to be overly emotional but in some cases it wasn't even the case you know I think there was there were reported cases where someone simply said something about the the state that oppresses Palestinians the state of Israel and it was critical of Israel and by all accounts that person was turfed on that basis so the, the, this did happen I think during the Mulcair years it was particularly um intense so you know in, in that sense yes I do think that there were there was a lot of resentment, basically, and also it, it feeds into this censorship of issues. Even if these people are in the right, they get censored by the party or by whatever political party they're they're running for. And I think that essentially, you know, all parties kind of feel like in in the media landscape, uh, what happens is that you have to, they have a confluence of a couple of things. Is that with social media, people are allowed are were able to share their thoughts, and it's also easy to to kind of like delve into what someone wrote about seven years ago and find something that can be twisted and put out of context. And that ability, all, uh, all parties have that power to do that. And then secondly, is that all parties are incredibly phobic of, of a modicum of conversation, especially during election cycle, whereby if someone says something, if, if it's twisted hard enough by a right-wing media source, parties feel kind of a, a need to drop that person immediately. And they say being undemocratic and wrong is much easier than, than having to explain ourselves and i think there's even a line that's used amongst operatives where they say whenever you're having to explain yourself you're already losing and so they would much rather pull the plug on a person with great impact to this person's career to this person's life and also to the cause that they've defended if we're going to talk about israel palestine and it puts an immense chill on this issue and i do think that that you know we've had these experiences and and people won't stand for it anymore and there have been a, a few occurrences that were especially egregious
1: Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Like if if the rebel, if the rebel news is attacking your candidate, your candidate is probably right. (laughs) and You shouldn't be dumping them. But just as we as we wind down, I'm curious as to what you think like how the convention is going to go in the digital medium and how you can sort of make sure things get prioritized in that because I think a lot of the conventional like making noise like having a lot of people in the room methods have to shift obviously um and so just wondering what support building looks like in that um, medium and anything else you want to share
2: yeah and I think you're right you know there's um all there's there's two things one is that in-person conventions although it is nice in the sense you can interact with people it is also kind of it is limiting because the only people who can go to those conventions not only are the fees often which are used in all parties for fundraising purposes prohibitive for a lot of people but often you know if it's held in Vancouver and you live in uh, uh, in Nova Scotia you have to hop on a plane in order to vote on the policies of the party you belong to so that's limiting in person but on the other hand in person is nice because you can make noise uh, you can uh, speak up and you can be heard. And uh, we found that uh, in 2018, when there was a lot of frustration around the, the resolution on Palestine is that there were a lot of people proudly holding up pictures of Ahed Tamimi uh, as she, uh, you know, a teenager who was held in prison by the Israeli defense forces for having slapped one of the soldiers occupying uh, her land. And so we could make a strong statement and get coverage that way. Now, virtually it's it's much more difficult to, but in organizing virtually is um, is uh, has been interesting because you can, it's easy to email, people and to message people uh, very quickly. And also, uh, in terms of the voting process, we'll just have to wait and see. I think the party has heard kind of a message from people who did Find that there was a lack of democratic uh, participation, and again, you know, th- this idea and all parties will do this. There's a vetting about uh, about policies from members, right? Um, and the way the NDP does it, and the Liberal Party, by the way, is is incredibly vetted. If you look at theirs, it's it's basically has been drafted by by staffers in the Liberal Party, or at least very very manicured. But the way the NDP does this, in a sense, is that there's the prioritization process, which is the bottleneck, and people are simply voting to have a discussion on it. But sometimes some discussions a party will rather it does not happen at a convention that bears their name but often this is the only venue to advance these these issues at a federal level so we'll just have to wait and see and i i think you know there there was an effort to demo, democratize thing and i think prioritization is happening on paper it seems more democratic because it's happening with uh with votes rather than having uh, a council uh, decide on the priorities but uh it's uh it's anyone's game i guess it's uh we'll it'll, we'll just have to see how the process goes
0: and when will you folks find out if um, any of your resolutions were prioritized?
2: There was just an email sent about this today, I think, and uh, I think it's it's about 48 hours before convention. So convention starts on the 9th. And I do think prioritization, it's on the 7th. So exactly two days before. So during Wednesday, April 7th, there'll be 24 hours of voting. And then uh, two days later, the, uh, the the priority list will be kind of, I think, unveiled at convention. And then uh, what, what gets debated on the floor will be, uh, will be revealed.
0: Awesome. And where can people find you and courage online?
2: So Courage, uh, you can follow Courage on Twitter. Um, you can send an email to uh, the General Curl- Courage inbox and uh, and ask about joining. Courage does organize internally. It's an organization where people pay dues. So it's, it's based on income level. So due paying members are part of Courage and then get to organize on the Slack channels and the Discord channels and all sorts of organizing tools that happen. And I must say, it's uh, I do I do look forward to a time in, in post-pandemic days when we can get back to meeting people in person when that was going on. Um, for example, in Ottawa, we had amazing meetings. We people really showed up in huge numbers. And we had a huge room full of people who were very passionate about advancing all sorts of progressive causes in society. And so uh, I hope one day we can get back to that. But in the meantime, there's the email address and um, you can follow Courage uh, on Twitter and on Facebook as well.
1: Thank you so much. And thanks everybody for listening. We're really looking forward to see what the outcomes of these things are.
0: Hey everyone, I just want to acknowledge some of the people who made this episode come together so seamlessly. It was definitely a collaborative effort. Shout out to the folks at Canadian Dimension as well as the folks at Courage Coalition and specifically Raiden Brailsford and Omar Bergen for giving us some time and getting this on the Hibipti Please docket because it's very important that leftists put forward resolutions when we can at conventions like this. And if people decide to follow the convention, that's great. And I think these resolutions are very important and meaningful, hope people enjoy the episode.